Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. Real people experiencing real change because of a real Savior. God is doing so much good stuff around here. Um, and uh, I, I hope you receive that blessing, um, the blessing of God in, in, uh, in your life. Uh, part of how we want to respond to the good that God is doing is, is we want to celebrate and uh, express our gratitude. And uh, Thanksgiving weekend seems like as good a weekend as any to celebrate and express our gratitude. And so uh, this coming Thanksgiving weekend, we're going to do that. And we're going to do it in a couple of ways. Uh, there won't be a Saturday night gathering that weekend, so we can all celebrate together Sunday morning in person or online. Uh, we're going to celebrate a couple ways. One, uh, every dollar that comes in uh, in here that weekend uh, is, is being sent out uh, to do good across the world. Uh, and uh, there is, if you want to give online, there's a Thanksgiving offering option online. It's already up, actually, and be online uh, through that, that weekend and that week. So uh, we'll, we'll give everything away because God has uh, blessed us. I mean, that doesn't mean that we are you know, overflowing the coffers around here. It just means that whether things are going great financially or not, we know God is blessing us, and we want to uh, express gratitude for that, and we want to support the work he's doing around the world. The other thing we're going to do, so that'll be sort of how we celebrate what God's doing around the world, how we're going to celebrate what God is doing here and amongst us in our communities. We have a couple people who want to get baptized, so we're going to do a couple baptisms uh, that weekend, uh, so we hope you will uh, join us for that. We will uh, we'll baptize, we'll talk about being all in for Jesus, and we uh, will give away to what God is doing around the world. Specifically, we're going to give to the Great Commission Fund. And I know there are some who are new around here or new-ish and may not know what the Great Commission Fund is. That is our denomination's uh, fund for funding the work of God around the world, for funding our missionaries, or we call them international workers, because uh, that works out better for visas and that kind of thing around the world. Uh, and uh, so we will uh, put our money toward, toward the Great Commission Fund. There's actually a couple different ways that you can participate in giving to the Great Commission Fund. One is to give directly to the fund, which will uh, help fund work around the world. Or we have specific partners in Bosnia-Herzegovina that we have been partnering with in their work for about a decade or more now. And uh, if you go on our website, you can see you can give directly to them as well. But we will be giving uh, all, all of the money to uh, the Christian Missionary Alliance. That's our denomination to their work around the world. Uh, the Christian Missionary Alliance uh, was founded, uh, I don't know, over 100 years ago. I'm bad with numbers. Uh, it was a long time ago. And uh, it was founded theologically on what's called the fourfold gospel, which is uh, essentially a fancy term for saying we understand that Jesus uh, is significant in our lives in four uh, specific and really incredible ways. We say Jesus is our savior, Oh, and by the way, none of these four are like specific to the Alliance. This is, you go, well, the church I grew up in believed all those things too. Yes, exactly. So uh, one is that Jesus is our savior. That's language we use in modern church culture uh, all the time. Jesus has saved us from our sins. We are forgiven uh, for the mistakes that we have made and the ways we have hurt ourselves, each other, and God. Jesus is our savior. It is his uh, life and death on the cross and resurrection from the dead that saves us from our sins, saves us from death, that gives us new life. Jesus is also our healer. We believe he is the one who makes us whole. And sometimes that manifests in physical healing. Sometimes it manifests in restored relationships. Sometimes it manifests in uh, emotional or mental health. And for sure, it manifests in the promise of eternal life, wholeness uh, with God forever. Jesus is the one who makes us whole. Jesus is also uh, our sanctifier, and we will talk more about that this morning. Jesus is the one who makes us holy, which is an incredibly weird thing to think about. And we say Jesus is our coming king. Jesus uh, lived, died, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and he will return one day to bring heaven and earth together again, make all things whole, and make all things right. 
Out of all of those concepts, sanctifier is uh, the churchiest of terms, um, and uh, it really does mean that, that God is making us holy. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but I do not feel particularly holy. The person that I have been this week, I would not define as holy, and I'm not saying I had a terrible week, I'm saying I had a human week. <laughs> I, don't, I don't feel particularly holy or perfected, uh, but... That means I, um, and I'm going to guess you, no offense, are in really good company. The Apostle Paul, who was an early church planter and a church leader and author, uh, put it this way in Romans chapter 7. This is the guy who wrote most of the New Testament. And this is what he said. After Jesus has been his savior, he knows Jesus is his coming king. Uh, he says this in Romans 7:15. I don't really understand myself. For I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. And I think we are all on some level familiar with this idea. The things that I want to do, I don't. The things that I don't want to do, I know I shouldn't do. I end up doing those things. And in fact, the things that I know I shouldn't do are often the things that I most want to do. That is my strongest desire some days and some moments. This is where regret comes from, right? When we either don't do the things that we know we should or we wanted to do, we go, oh, I really wish I had done this. Or we do the things that we we don't want to do, and we know we shouldn't, and we walk away going, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. And regret leads to shame. And shame leads to us believing one of two significant lies about ourselves. Either on the one hand, our shame causes us to believe the lie that we are a failure, that we are worthless, that we are unworthy of somebody's love or care, anybody's, let alone God's. And that's the one side. On the other side, we may believe the lie that uh, the things we have done that we didn't want to do didn't really hurt people. It's really not that big a deal. Nobody should be hurt by it. I shouldn't be hurt by it. I'm not hurt by it. No shame. I am an unashamed whatever. And there are probably places where it is appropriate to say, I am an unashamed blah. But often we use that term when we have done or said something that hurts somebody. And we go, oh, but I'm on an unashamed this. Or we say, well, if, man, if that hurt you, that's, that's on you. I, I can't do anything about that. So either we believe the lie that our actions or inactions have somehow disqualified us from being worthy of care and attention and love, or we go, yeah, no shame here, no shame. You're fine, I'm fine. We're all just fine. God says that we aren't defined by our failures and our mistakes, and we aren't defined by our shame. Our mistakes simply mean that we are human it is part of the human condition. And the truth is that you are a mess. <laughs> and so am I. <laughs> and the truth is that you are loved. God has been simultaneously loving and correcting and blessing humanity, human beings, for a very long time. From the very first human beings we read about in scripture, Adam and Eve are created and placed in the perfect garden in God's perfect presence. And God says it is very good. They're made in the image of God. And yet they believe this lie from this talking snake that says, no, no, no. It's not enough to be in God's presence. It's not enough to be like God in your image. You have to be like God in his power and his knowledge. And so they sinned. They reached for things that weren't theirs to reach for. They ate the forbidden fruit. And scripture says that they ate it 
And suddenly they were aware of something that they weren't aware of before, that they were naked and they felt ashamed and they hid. And God came and found them and he said, that's right, you should feel ashamed. You are awful, I can't believe you did that. And you have to leave now, you're kicked out. Actually, God didn't say most of that. God actually showed up. Somebody's checking their Bible, like, I don't remember that part. Uh, God actually shows up and he says, who lied to you? Who made you believe that you should be ashamed? And he very tenderly and lovingly clothes them. He protects them and provides for them and cares for them. And then he ushers them out of the garden and they are ushered out because in their actions, doing the thing they were not supposed to do, they have sinned and sin is this curse-causing disease that gets a hold of Adam and Eve's hearts. And God says, well, this thing can't last forever. And you're in this place where all things live forever. And so we can't have you here anymore because this thing is in your heart and it is part of who you are and it's going to be part of every child you have. And we can't have this mess live forever. So you're gonna have to go. And the things that did bring you joy are gonna bring you some pain. But I will be with you. And he promises, promises that there will come a savior who's gonna crush the head of that lying snake and he's gonna give up his own life to do it. And as we read through the Old Testament, we find that God is committed to loving and caring for, providing for, blessing his people. We find out that this savior is going to be a king. So he's gonna have all the authority of heaven and earth and he's gonna be a priest meaning he's gonna have the priestly duties of uh, forgiving people of their sins, of talking to people on behalf of God and talking to God on behalf of the people. And this savior is the hope that drives people through much of the Old Testament. And the first person we see God commit to blessing explicitly is a man named Abraham. He said, Abraham, I'm gonna give you a family and I'm gonna bless your family, which is a really weird person to choose for a couple of reasons. One, Abraham was too old to have kids, but that's not even the weirdest part because Abraham uh, also doubted God routinely. He lied to cover his own skin. He uh, gave his wife away for other people to sleep with just so they wouldn't kill him to get to her. Abraham was a mess. And as we continue through the Old Testament, we find out not only is this savior gonna come from Abraham, but more specifically, he's gonna come from his great-grandson, Judah. And we don't talk about Judah a whole lot because there's not a whole lot of great examples to look at in Judah's life. Judah sold his brother into slavery. He uh, lied to cover his own skin. He dismissed his widowed daughter-in-law over and over and over again until she pretended to be a prostitute and he slept with her and he got her pregnant and he condemned her to die until he found out it was his baby. Judah was a mess. But we find out that this king and priest is gonna come from Judah's line. And as we read on, we find out that Abraham's family grows into a tribe grows into a nation, and sure enough, the second king of that nation is from the line of Judah. It's a man named David. And David is described as a man who has a heart like God's, and he is a king. And while he's not a priest per se, people see him as one. I mean, he has a heart like God's, and he seems to speak to God for the people and, and to the people on behalf of God, and maybe this is the guy. And with a heart like God's, he does so much good. But he also has this sin disease in him. And David commits adultery. He lies to cover it. He has her husband killed to cover for the fact that he got her pregnant. David was a mess. This is the line of people that our savior comes from. And humanity is left waiting for this coming king and priest who seems too good to be true. 
Meanwhile, as we continue to wait, God sends these prophetic voices, people who continue to proclaim the truth. And the truth they proclaim is you are a mess and you are loved and God is still at work and this savior is still coming. There's still a plan in place to rescue you and kill the snake. Jeremiah maybe sums up our messness the best. In Jeremiah 17, nine, he says, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? And I have days where I'm like, I don't know that this applies to me. And I have days where I go, oh man, yeah, I don't even know how ugly this can get. So God not only needs to have a rescue plan in place to kill the snake and rescue us from the lies, but he is going to have to do something about what sin has done to our hearts and minds and souls about the way this disease has infected us and eaten away at the goodness that he made in us. And so through a different prophet, Ezekiel, he promises this in Ezekiel 36. He says, then, speaking of of the day when he will save us, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. I will put my spirit, the spirit of God in you. I will give you a new heart. And the question then, of course, is how? How does God give us a new heart? And for those of you who like uh, filling in the blanks, following along that way, those are on the back uh, of your uh, bulletin announcements there. How is God going to put a new heart in us, take out the stony, stubborn, and put in tender and responsive? How is God going to put his spirit in us when we are so clearly a mess, when God cannot live with sin, when Adam and Eve had to be removed from the guard, how is God gonna put his spirit, essentially take up residence in us when we are such a mess? And the answer is that he is going to create a way to make you and me perfect. Perfect. And then He's going to make us holy. And more ridiculously, better said for us in 2021, God has made a way to make us perfect. And he is working on making us holy. Again, I don't feel particularly holy. And there is this Line this oft-repeated uh, statement in our culture that you are perfect just the way you are. And I know what they're getting at. And it would sound too soft and squishy, but it would be far more accurate to say, you are lovable just the way you are. And that is totally true. But really from any of us who are probably 40-ish on down, We have been raised with the statement, you are perfect just the way you are. And that gets very confusing when we are very aware that we are not perfect. I don't mean that God, uh, that we are, are exactly perfect just the way we are. We know that we're not. What I do mean is that God has made a way for humanity to be like the first humans before sin entered the picture. Perfectly made, called very good, a heart that is uncorrupted, perfect in his presence, able to live in, be in his presence and for him to be in ours. He found a way 
to undo the curse and the cost of our sins. And he did it through Jesus. He gave him all authority in heaven and on earth. He made him the king of kings and he gave him the occupations of a priest. He spoke to the people on behalf of God. He mediates for uh, the people in the presence of God and he forgave sins. The king and the priest, Jesus Christ, the savior that God had promised from the very beginning. So how did he do this? How did he, through Jesus, make a way for us to be considered perfect in the sight of God? A little bit of Old Testament background before we dive into Jesus's story. Abraham's family grew, and before they grew to the point of being a nation, they grew to the point of being a very, very convenient workforce. And they were enslaved by the country of Egypt for over 400 years until God rescued them with a series of incredible miracles, pulled them out of there and said, hey, I have a promised land, a new life ahead for you but they had been slaves for 400 years and all they knew about their worth and how to be a society was what the Egyptians had told them, which was not very helpful or good. And so he spent 40 years wandering them around in circles saying, I'm gonna teach you, we're gonna pull Egypt out of you and I'm gonna teach you how to be a good society. And so we read through early parts of the Bible and we go, this is a lot of rules and it's really boring. And well, yeah, because it's actually a rule book. Like it is actually, here's how you're going to set up a society in which you can, I'm going to teach you how to love the people around you, the nations around you. I'm going to teach you how to care for each other. I'm going to teach you what worship and interaction with me looks like. And in doing that, part of the worship system was a system of sacrifices where the people brought their best animal or their best crop, and they gave it to the priest and it was sacrificed before God so that their sins would be forgiven. And this uh, accomplished two really significant things. One, it reminded the people how significant the hurts are. That when they hurt each other, when they hurt themselves, when they hurt God by going against what he has called them to do, they need to be reminded, we need to be reminded that there is a cost to hurting others. This is not unlike what we teach a two-year-old who doesn't understand that there are consequences to punching their sister in the face. And we say, actually, we're going to punish you now so that you understand that this is wrong. Because if we don't do it now, the cops will later better than we do it now. And God said, look, it, there are consequences to hurting one another. There's consequences to stepping into things that hurt you. And this is really significant. We're not just gonna brush this away and say, hey, no big deal. The consequence of this is death, that things don't live forever. And we're gonna remember that by you giving up the very best you have to give. The animals or the crops would have been their prized possessions, would have been their, um, their source of income. This was the best they had to give because the cost of sin, of hurting each other, ourselves, and God is significant. So that was one thing it accomplished. The other one is the forgiveness of sins. God took away their shame because they would come and offer these things up and whatever shame and hiding and needing to run away from God they felt like they needed to do, God said, you are forgiven and you as a people can be in my presence. And whatever running away from my blessing and my provision that you were trying to do, whatever trying to take care of yourself, determine good and evil for yourself that you were trying to do, you are now back under my umbrella. You are in my presence. You are under my love. I, you don't have to feel ashamed and they would, they would step in and, and say, okay, yes, there is a cost to this. And I'm reminded of my sin. I'm reminded of the cost. But I don't have to be so afraid of God that I am ashamed and hiding. This was essentially the way that God went to a nation the same way he went to Adam and Eve. I said, hey, you don't have to listen to the lies that you aren't worth it. I'm telling you that you are forgiven and you are loved and you are under my provision and care and blessing. The people reminded of the seriousness of their sin 
and reminded of the grace and mercy of God. So it is with that background that an author in the New Testament, we don't actually know who he or she is. We just know that she grew up in the Israelite, she or he grew up in the Israelite nation. They were a Jewish person and they're writing to other Jewish people. And it's a letter preserved in the New Testament as Hebrews. And the author assumes that the people they're writing to know all of that background. And they wanna say, look where Jesus stepped in to that story. So this is Hebrews chapter 10. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow. That's the system we were just talking about. A dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped. For the worshipers would have been purified once for all time and their feelings of guilt would have, been, would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. You were not pleased with burnt offerings or other offerings for sin. Then I said, look, I've come to do your will, O God, as is written about me in the scriptures. Quick pause, just to note that we don't have any record of Jesus saying this. It doesn't mean he didn't. There's just none of the gospel writers who wrote the story of Jesus quote him as saying this. What is being quoted here for sure is a Psalm of David. Remember the king who was kind of a priest and a whole lot of a mess? He wrote these words in one of the Psalms he wrote. And it is only after the fact that people look back on this and go, well, David wasn't saying this about himself. David actually became the architect of the temple where the people would show up and offer their animal sacrifices. And we understood this on the other side of Jesus to be a prophetic word from David that this savior is coming. And this will be true, that God no longer desires animal sacrifices, but he desires a contrite heart, David would write in another place, a repentant heart. And Jesus said himself that he's not come to abolish the law to get rid of it. He has come to fulfill it. So verse eight, for Christ said, you do not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burnt offerings or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them, though they are required by the law of Moses. Then he said, look, I have come to do your will. He cancels the first covenant in order to put the second into effect. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all Time Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest, this is Jesus, our king and our priest, our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. Through Jesus, God has forever made perfect those who are being made holy. Through Jesus, God has made perfect those who are being made holy. Perfect in the sight of God that for anyone who his scripture says comes under the lordship of Jesus, which is funny words for us because we don't talk about lords anymore. But essentially what it means is that we have looked at our own life and gone, actually, I don't do the things I want to do and I do the things I don't want to do and I'm kind of a mess. And when I run my life, I end up making all these mistakes and I get hurt and other people get hurt and I am not following what my creator has called me to do very well. It'd be really nice if somebody else was in charge of my life, if somebody else was Lord of my life. Who better than the king and the priest? The one who lived the perfect life and became the perfect sacrifice. Anyone who comes under the Lordship of Jesus says, Jesus is Lord and believes that God raised him from the dead. They now belong to Jesus and they belong under his 
covering, under the covering of his sacrifice. They are forgiven of their sins and they are made perfect in the sight of God. That there is no longer any need for separation between God and them. They are made perfect by the death of Jesus and they are given eternal life through his resurrection from the dead. Paul, the same guy who wrote in Romans, writes in another place that we are citizens of heaven. Not, not will be citizens of heaven. We are citizens of heaven. And I will not pretend to know how all of that works perfectly. But what it means is that there is something about our core identity as people who have come under the goodness of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, that we are perfect in the presence of God. And that is already true. We have been made perfect. You have been made perfect perfect by the love and sacrifice, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we're still walking around on this earth making a mess. And we are still in need of some growth. And God is still making us holy. He is still at work in us. Jesus said uh, in the Gospel of John, a couple of different conversations are recorded that I want to talk about this morning. The first one is with a guy named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes to him and says, I want to enter your kingdom, King Jesus. And he says, well, you have to be born again, which didn't make any sense to Jesus and doesn't make any sense to us. We act like it does because some of us grew up in the church and we heard this born again thing all the time. We're like, okay, I hear it a lot. I must know what it means. But it's really, nobody can be born again. And Nicodemus says that. How does somebody go back in their mother's womb? That doesn't make any sense. And essentially, it is Jesus tying back to this promise in Ezekiel that we will be given a new heart. We will be given a new life. We will be given a new uh, life, blood, force, heart, beat. We will be given an eternal life. We will be born again perfect in the presence of God as citizens of heaven with a new eternal life. And that was near the beginning of Jesus's ministry. Near the end, John records him having a conversation with his followers and friends where he says, hey, I'm gonna go away. And I know you don't really believe me because you think this thing is gonna last forever, but I tell you, I'm gonna go away. I'm going to die. And I know that you think that would be bad news, but I'm telling you it's good news. And here's why. Because as long as I am here in this human form, I can only be with you as long as you are physically in my presence. But when I go away, God is going to send you the spirit of God. And that spirit will be with you everywhere you go. He says that spirit of God will be your guide and your conscience It'll be the one who convicts you of your sin, reminds you of your sin and the cost of it, and reminds you of God's love and care and points you in his direction for the forgiveness of your sins. It's going to be better if I go away because God is going to put his spirit in you. Again, hearkening back to Ezekiel. So this is the theology behind this fancy word sanctification, that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament law by becoming the sacrifice himself so that we are forgiven of our sins, perfect in the presence of God and able to be empowered by God's Holy Spirit. But what does it actually matter? What is the significance of sanctification, of being made holy, and perfect in our lives. I think there's significance for us who believe in Jesus and there's significance for those around us who did not. I think the most significant thing for us is to know that we are in formation. We are in formation. And yes, that's terrible grammar and there's a better way to say that. And yes, it's a dumb play on words with information and I'll talk about that in a second. A better way to say this is that we are undergoing transformation, but we are in the process of being formed. And this is good news for lots of reasons. One, it means that it's okay that I'm a mess because God is still at work on me. 
God is still making me holy. This should give us permission to show up to church and go, hey, I had a lousy week. And we go, me too. And that would be enough. <laughs> that we don't have to show up and go, no, no, I got it together. It's, it's all good. I, I got it all together. Yep, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm fine. I've totally, God has made me perfect. I'm good. I made no mistakes this week. I'm, I'm all set. And so much of our world outside the church is cultivating as much of an image of perfection as we can to say on social media and in our friend groups and whatever, no, I'm doing fine. I've got it together. It's all good. And we all know that that person on Instagram does not have it all together. What we see is that they have it all together, but we know they don't. And yet we go, well, looks like they have it all together. Looks like I'm the only one out here who's a mess. If you feel that way, I invite you to look around the room and see all the other messes around you. No offense. We just are, and it's okay. And God continues to work on us to say, I have better for you. You are not stuck here. When we feel so stuck in our mistakes and our shame and so unworthy that God would even touch us, he says, no, 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 no. Yes, I know you're a mess, and I love you, and I am forming you and transforming you. I also want to talk about the power of information in our lives to affect this formation. Information as a word literally means the formation of our minds. The books we read, the news we watch, the social media we engage with, these things form our minds. And the Bible calls us to do this. Same guy, uh, Paul, wrote uh, a little later in Romans, Romans 12, 2. He said, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. God is giving us a new heart, a new spirit, and he's renewing our minds, transforming the way that we think. Never underestimate the power of information to affect you. And we may think of information as just being cold, hard facts that are kind of out there and we decide how we let them affect us. But the information you grew up with in your home, the information you grew up with at school or at your church, this information has formed your mind. It forms the way you think about the world around you, the way you think about yourself. Information forms us, forms how we see and how we interact. And if we only listen to information that we already agree with, we are not being transformed. We are simply sinking deeper into the formed we already are. And if we've all agreed that that formed is imperfect and in need of some holiness, then we should be open to information that is outside of what we already believe. Even for those of us who say, no, I know Jesus and I know the truth, then it should not scare us so much to hear some information outside of that, to be aware of it, to let us inform how we see our God based on how other people see our God, to inform how we engage with the world around us. Maybe a better, perhaps more comfortable example. If we come to scripture and we say, I already know the correct way for an economic system to work in a society. I just need the Bible to back it up for me. We're doing this backwards. If we're coming to scripture and saying, okay, I know this thing to be true in the world. Now, where's that Bible verse that agrees with me? We're no longer being transformed by the work God is doing in us and by the scripture and teaching he has given us. We are forming the Bible around what we already think and believe, and we've got it backwards. 
But so many of us do that sometimes or often without even realizing it because we are so formed by the information we hear the other 23 hours and 45 minutes of the day that the 15 minutes we spend in scripture is informed by all of that. And I'm not saying that it's not going to be. I'm saying we need to be aware of it. Don't underestimate the power of information to form your brain. Pay attention to the information that you are taking in. What is it that is forming the way you think, the way you see the world around you? And the most powerful information, the information that sinks in the deepest is information attached to fear and shame and anger. Pay attention to the information around you that causes you to be afraid or ashamed or angry because it's those people over there who are at fault. And if we don't recognize it, we'll end up bringing our fear and our shame and our anger to scripture and we'll form the Bible around us rather than being transformed. And it is through being transformed that we know the will of God, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And we'll miss out on what is good and pleasing and perfect because we're too busy listening to the voices of fear and shame and anger. So God gives us a heart with an eternal perspective. He gives us a new spirit as our conscience and our guide, a spirit and a scripture that will renew our minds. In his letter to the Philippian church, Paul says this, Philippians chapter two, verse 13. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. God is giving us a new desire and a new power. How are we supposed to do the will of God, this good and pleasing and perfect will when we are such a mess? God is giving us a new heart and a new spirit empowerment to be able to do the good and pleasing, perfect, thing, perfect things he's calling us to do. We are made new, new life, new desire, new ability to do the will of God. And in this post-enlightenment era that we live in, we seem to think that we could just get all of our information right. If we could just get the right sources and the right proof that we'll be all good. We'll be able to convince all the people around us to think with the same information we think with and we will convince them and we will have done our task of convincing the people around us with the information we have. I wanna tell you that God has more for you than just information. He has transformation for you. New life, new heart, new spirit. This is why we talk about needing to know God, not just know about God, but actually engage in relationship with him where we are learning his heart and motivation and love and care and his perspective, not just to be better informed and to believe we can win an argument, but to actually be transformed in our heart and our spirit and our mind. Quick story about uh, Jesus and transformation. In uh, John chapter four, Jesus is sitting by a, a well in what was essentially enemy territory. The, the people, his, Jesus grew up Jewish as part of this Jewish system and, and there were the Samaritan people and they did not get along. They fought about everything, which I know it's really hard to imagine uh, a country where like there'd be two groups of people that fight about everything. But if you can stretch your mind to think that might be possible. So there are these uh, two groups of people uh, and he's sitting by this well and, and uh, this should be fine. His disciples go into town and they just kind of leave him there and that should be fine. Nobody's gonna come around because it's hot and everybody came out in the morning to get all their water out of the well. And yet here comes this Samaritan woman walking up to get her water. And the only reason she would do this is to try to avoid the other people of her village to say, I don't want to be around them for some reason. And they start talking and uh, she starts to try to talk uh, worship styles and politics with him. <laughs> She's like, hey, how come, how come you guys think this way? And how come you worship on that mountain when we know the right mountain is this one over here? 
Essentially, how could you be so wrong when the information so clearly backs us up? (laughs) And Jesus doesn't argue with her at all. He says, hey, where's your husband? And they get into this very awkward conversation about the fact that she has been married multiple times and is now living with somebody that she's not even married to, which you think that was scandalous 50 years ago. That was a complete disaster. There's a reason she's avoiding everybody. I'm sure they whispered and they pointed. She tried to get in a conversation and an argument of information. And Jesus said, hey, let's talk about what we really need to talk about. Let's let's talk about where the hurt and the shame really are. Jesus tells her that he knows her story. He is, after all, fully God and fully man, and he knows her story and her heart, and he goes straight to the heart. And I'm sure, because again, he's, God and man, that he could win an information argument if he wanted to. That he could have proven to her why uh, the Jewish people do the things he does. But instead of arguing with her, he reaches out and he touches her shame. And he says, hey, let's talk about this. You could spend your whole life telling Jesus why you're right and those people over there are wrong. And Jesus wants to reach out and touch your shame and tell you that you are loved. He tells her that he knows her story and then he tells her about a new life and a new spirit that she could have. He says, I know you've got these worldly desires. And he talks about her her thirst for water that she's pulling out of the well. I know you've got these worldly desires, but I'm telling you, there's a desire for something better and more, and I can fulfill that desire. I know what your strongest desires are, but I'm telling you, I know you've got deeper desires and I can fulfill those. Would you come and let me change you and change your life? And she is transformed, not by information and argument, but by the grace and love and acceptance of Jesus. And so here's what she does in John chapter four. The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, remember all these people she was trying so hard to avoid? Ran back to the village telling everyone Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? Could he be this king and priest that we've been waiting for? Could it be him? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. She did not say, hey, I met this guy. And it turns out he's kind of a king in this way, and he's kind of a priest in this way. And, and as we kind of look through the, the prophets, we can see that he fulfills this prophecy and this prophecy and this one. She doesn't go to information. She says, come and see the man who has changed my life, who has transformed me. Part of the significance for the people around us of your sanctification, of God transforming your life, is that what people really need to hear is your transformation, not information. They don't, we have so much information in our lives. People need to hear your transformation, not just information. We got plenty of information. What we need to hear and what the people around you need to hear, other people need to hear your story of transformation. You could try to convince everyone you know that you have the truth and you have the information to prove it. But nothing shows off the work of God like transformation. This outcast woman, a voice that nobody would listen to in her culture. Nobody would want to hear 
captures their attention by saying that she has been transformed and that they can be too. People need to hear that Jesus can undo their shame too. People need to hear in the transformation of your story that their story can be transformed too, that there is grace and God's goodness for them. And I want you to know that Jesus can undo your shame. Whatever it is that has made you believe that you are unworthy of the love and care of the people around you and of the God who made you, that is simply a lie that is not true. I guess that's what a lie is. It's a statement that is not true. What is true is that you and I are both a mess and God knows it. And he has made a way through Jesus to undo your shame, to undo the cost of the curse of sin, to make you perfect in his sight. And he wants to love you and care for you and mold you and make you holy. We are undergoing transformation by the goodness and grace of God. So as the worship team comes up and we bring ourselves before him, let me pray for us and the transformation that we're undergoing. Father God, we are so grateful for your grace and your goodness. We are so grateful that you don't give up on us, that you don't pile on our shame, but that you pile on grace and forgiveness. And as we run around knowing what we should do and doing the opposite, wanting so badly to do the things that we know we shouldn't, hurting the people that you have given us to love and care about. You continue to love and care about us. You stay faithful to us. God, thank you for making a way through Jesus's death and resurrection, making a way for us to be in your presence, to know your love, to know your heart to be transformed and changed by you. So God, we show up in our mess, in our imperfections, asking you to love and forgive and mold and transform us in the powerful and holy name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for checking out our podcast. Find out more or connect online at easthillsalliance.org.